Hello, everyone. Uh, apologies in advance if this is a bit rough. I hope those of you in the States had a happy Thanksgiving, and to all listeners everywhere, uh, welcome back after a little break. This episode of 50 Miles Per Hour was edited several weeks ago um, in the interim on November 13th. I lost my mother, Jean, to a long battle of illness that has been a part of my daily existence for quite some time. This was two days before my birthday. But that's not as sad as it might seem because I find myself comforted by the fact that my birthday is now so intertwined with my mother. After all, why wouldn't it be? My mom played a significant role in my appreciation of movies. First of all, I know she watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind in the hospital after I was born, so it's entirely possible that's the first movie I ever saw. (laughs) That sounds like it might be apocryphal, uh, but I like it, so I'm making it part of my origin story. It's one of my favorite movies to this day. My mom's favorite movie was Gone with the Wind. We spoke about it just not long ago, a few weeks back. She remembered seeing it as a little girl with her best friend back when movie theaters had these little sofa couples seats. She was in Girl Scouts at the time, so my guess is that would have been the 1967 reissue of the film. She was born in 1956. Anyway, with my mom and my dad, I remember seeing stuff way too young, like Jaws and Aliens and Robocop. The Exorcist was something that always loomed large as a movie that shook my mom, and so that was a big moment when I finally saw and verified that effect with my own two eyes. When we would make the trip from whatever Virginia or North Carolina town we lived in at the time and would come to my grandmother's house, her mother's house, which is where I am right now as I say these words, where my mom lived until she died, in this chair, we would often record a movie or two off of HBO. We later got HBO ourselves, and of course we were frequent blockbuster video pilgrims. I feel like that is how I came to movies like Ghostbusters and Raiders of the Lost Ark, Temple of Doom. I seem to recall Mask, the Peter Bogdanovich movie, Mannequin, Enemy Mine, just a mid-80s smorgasbord. The first movie I saw in a theater was Masters of the Universe in 1987. I was a big He-Man kid. And the way my mom indulged my pop culture bailiwicks, if you will, certainly shaped me in many ways. The last movie I remember seeing with my mom in the theater was quite some time ago. It was The Dark Knight in 2008, which is fitting seeing as Tim Burton's Batman was such a huge part of my life 19 years prior. Mom would always ask me about the big Oscar movies each year, and she was proud of my work as a journalist. She loved it when I would send my published works to her, as any beaming parent would. I could have appreciated that pride a little more. The last trip I made here with my wife and son was this past summer, as we would every year. She got to sit and watch the Super Mario Brothers movie at home with her grandson, which was his first movie in the theater. His name is Foster, uh, by the way, and you'll meet him very soon yourself. Um, The last movie I ever watched with my mom was Speed. Go figure. I had wanted to do that together with her and my dad for a long time because it was always such a VHS mainstay and it reminded me of those simpler days. She knew about this podcast and had listened to the trailer. She was happy for me and this thing I had been building for the last few years. 
I'm not sure how much of it she was able to listen to as her health declined, but the last exchange we had was a text message about her excitement over a big interview I had completed with Billy Idol several days ago. <laughs> so consider that a preview of coming attractions. I guess the point of all of this is there is a part of my mom in every single part of me and my relationship to movies is no exception. 50 miles per hour means even more to me now, of course. And I hope now that she's at peace, maybe mom will get a chance to listen. I think she would find it all interesting. Either way, I know she would be my number one fan, because she always was. Thanks for listening to this. Let's get going. This is 50 Miles Per Hour. Pop quiz, hotshot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is armed. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50... Stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh, darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. All right, let's saddle back up, folks. This hell ride isn't finished yet. We're coming down the home stretch of covering the chronological production of the bus portion of Speed, beginning with the early city and freeway material, then the big jump sequence, and now, the airport. You'll recall in our locations episode that this final stretch was originally meant to take place at Dodger Stadium, but they weren't able to secure the location. Transportation coordinator Randy Peters takes credit for suggesting the switch to LAX, so I wanted to start with him today and a little anecdote that he told. I knew guys at LAX, so I ended up like the shot with a 747 where they're towing it and the bus goes flying in front. So I knew that one of the guys that ran, ran a, a ramp place over there, uh, you know, uh, it was called Ontario Air Service. He's still a friend of mine now, Steve Nevis. He has a chartered company for Rocket Air. So I would go over there and I go, Steve, I need a 747 to do this shot. He goes, well, the... You know, so-and-so's, the freighter's coming in night, Coletta, we can pull it in the shot. I said, how much, man? What do you want? A thousand bucks? Five? What do you want? Yeah, yeah, we'll do it for that. So I, I go to Ian, I go, I need a thousand dollars. I don't pay this guy off. So I go grease the guy off. And next thing you know, you got a 747 coming down the taxiway and we're freaking flying by it. That moment immediately follows what I consider to be the coolest shot in the entire movie as the bus tears onto the runway. A smaller plane lands in the far distance as a much larger one takes off in the middle distance. Then here comes bus 2525 blowing onto the scene. And in front of that, more layers with orange delineators and pole lights and... Uh, it's just so good. Here's set decorator Casey Fox. Anything orange in the film, I was providing. I provided miles of orange snow fencing along 105. I provided you know, hundreds of delineators, the stand-up delineators with flags and, you know, all those materials, all those construction site, freeway materials, like when they're driving onto the 105. And, and likewise, at one point, we decided that when they went to the Bravo Tango area at the airport, that they needed to be able to pass by something on a regular basis to make you feel like the bus was really going fast. So I designed these standing lights, strobe lights, uh, out of metal, and we tried them. And they were about six feet tall, and they each had a strobe, and they, they had a shelf on the bottom for weight. Uh, there was quite a few. There were at least 100 of those standing lights. And I'm sure I spent thousands, you know, probably $100,000 or something for all of the lights, whatever it was. 
art director John Jensen. They wanted that up and they wanted some scaffold pieces and things in foreground and in background so that they could see the bus traveling through it. Otherwise, it would just open airstrip. The security guy came out and said, you guys are going to be shooting in the Bravo Tango area. That means if we get a bomb threat, you have to vacate the area in like less than 10 minutes with all your stuff. So everything would have to get picked up off the tarmac. So he said, tomorrow we're going to have a test. And if you pass, you can keep all those lights and flags and all that stuff. And of course, it was very important to Jan de Bon and to Jack Degovia to have that as dressing out there. You know, it was a nice pop of color. It really made the bus look like it was moving when they were all stacked up like that. It looked terrific. So we did it and we passed the test. It took two trucks going in opposite directions with the driver, one guy in the bed, one guy on the lift gate and another guy throwing him up to him. So they'd throw one to the next to the next and throw it in the truck. And we made it in under 10 minutes. But of course, all the light bulbs broke. First assistant camera, Vern Nobles Jr. They had a plane with a possible bomb on it and they moved it over there. Actually, now they built the remote terminal over where we were. There's a whole nother terminal there now. But back then, that was the area designated all the way at the end of the runway to the right. Just by that big sand berm, it was a big open area. And that's where they bring planes if there was a suspected bomb so they wouldn't blow up anything but the plane itself. Now at LAX, that's the extra remote terminal that you take a bus to. And gaffer Chris Strong. We had a day at LAX where they had a uh, an airplane emergency, and one of the landing gears wouldn't come down. So they kicked us all off, made us go far, far away, and the plane came over the airport two or three times. And you could see that the landing gear on one of the main ones, was not down. So they were getting ready, actually, to get rid of us, to foam the runway. But the guy kept going out over Catalina and just rocking the plane as hard as he could, and the gear finally came down. They were actually shooting at the airport during one of the frequent Los Angeles fires out here, specifically the old Topanga fire in Malibu that burned from November 2nd to November 11th, 1993. You can actually go back and turn up some pretty harrowing imagery of these fires, which lit up the night sky like something out of Mordor. Here's actor Joe Morton. It really was kind of snowing ash while we were there. which sort of added a kind of texture to it. And looking up at the sky, it looked like the sun was the end of a lit cigarette in the middle of an ashtray. Still photographer Richard Foreman. One day, all of a sudden, we saw huge fires up on the ridges in Malibu. And one by one, crew members that either lived in Malibu or had relatives living in Malibu went up to Jan and say, Jan, I have to go. And by midday, I'm not sure when the fire started, but within four hours, we had like a skeleton crew. I'd say a quarter of the crew had left, you know, because a lot of people lived in Topanga, which is up, you know, close to Malibu. You know, they just had to go because when you could be at the LAX airport and looking up and see the actual flames, you know that it's big. And talk about harrowing, we're coming up on another big stunt. Once Jack Traven has the bright idea for Annie to hightail it into the airport, he finally has some control over the situation as the bus can just keep doing laps as they try to find Howard Payne and put an end to this madness. In the meantime, Jack wants to take a stab at defusing the bomb himself, so he convinces Payne to let him off. I just want to mention a beat here. You know when Keanu Reeves steps from the bus over to the police SUV to go get ready to go under the bus? I've mentioned before that I watched the movie with Vern and DP Andre Barkoviak. During that screening, Vern pointed to the screen when that happened, when Keanu stepped across to the SUV and said, We can't do that anymore. Even something like that, insurance wouldn't allow today without some kind of secure tether. It sort of makes you wonder if they even knew he did that, because, as I understand it, there were a number of things Keanu did without the studio's knowledge. Here's First Assistant Director David Sardi. You know, there's been a few times in my career where I've witnessed such total commitment from an actor, but Keanu was utterly committed to what we were doing. Everything from jumping from car to car, jumping on the bus, you know, going under the bus, you know, all of what he did was, really impressive. I was just in awe of his commitment's the word that I use. And there's only been a few times I've seen an actor commit to a role like that. Um, and it's, uh, when they do, it's always really special. 
So let's start talking about that under the bus bit. Here's director Jan de Bont. The only tricky shot is when the cart goes under the bus the first time from far away, close to close, and go actually under it. That was very dangerous. And that was not piano, of course, because the bus never stays a straight line and the car doesn't go a straight line. But once it's, done, once it's under the bus and move, moving under the bus itself, that's all being controlled and mm-hmm. it just looks dangerous. And the sound is there. Also, you go hearing the sound of the tires and the speed of it. That alone gives you, gets your adrenaline already going. And that's why those scenes only work so well, because they, you put them in the same position as, as in reality, and, and you get a performance that is based on that adrenaline level. Stunt coordinator Gary Himes. We were able to do small sections of it where he was on that trolley, right? You know, you try to create a very stable and safe environment when you have someone who's not a, a stunt person on it, let's say. And so we would do all the big masters and everything with the stunt guy. And then as it's going under the bus, of course, either we do a poor man's or we would do it where the bus and that would be traveling, but it was no longer attached, of course, to the outside vehicle, you know, the wench system. It was on our little leader so we could just move it four, six feet or whatever it was. So, of course, everything gets broken up into much smaller pieces, but no. Absolutely. There were things that Keanu did where there's no way the studio or insurance companies will let you do it today. Or, and quite honestly, I don't know many actors that would even, I mean, they'd probably look at you like you came from Mars if you asked them to do it, you know? Let's hear from the guy who you do see physically going under the bus. Well, one of them. I'll get to the other one in a second, but the shot where you see the top of Jack Traven's head going out toward the bus, that was assistant stunt coordinator Brian Smurs. Brian doubled Keanu both here and, you'll recall, in the jump from the Jaguar to the bus. I can't tell you how big a bus looks when you're laying on your back and um, it's coming at you because, again, the thing is, a bus really isn't tall enough to go under. You can get under it, but eventually, pretty quickly, you hit stuff that's lower than what, especially on a cart, you couldn't physically go all the way under the bus. So we had a piece of plexiglass that was say eight feet under so i could just barely get under and then i'm going to be hitting the plexiglass but that's not a good thing either because it's better than getting hooked up um but but still like if the bus is going faster than you and my feet hit the plexiglass it's going to turn me sideways and you know then i'm all sideways underneath the bus so that's that's not good so it was a tricky situation again i actually did not belt myself into the cart. I put webbing underneath. So I had the plexiglass and I had the webbing like that I could grab onto. I just had different handholds that I could grab onto because I thought, well, if it gets out of control, I'm just going to grab on the other side of the bus and let the cart leave me. I didn't want to be attached to a cart that was under a bus and going sideways. So that was my personal choice. It was pretty tricky because Gil Combs was driving the bus from the middle. So he couldn't see me. And then Ronnie Rondell was driving the tow truck from in front, but he couldn't see me because there was all the gear and the truck and the thing. So neither of the guys that are actually driving could see me. And then Gary Hines was in the back of the tow truck in a box, and he was giving cues for the vehicles to come forward and go back. And uh, yeah, it was pretty hairy, actually. Stunt driver Gil Combs. That got our attention. That's for sure. I really didn't envy Brian or Keanu because, I mean, you know, that's the definition of being a passenger. I mean, you you got no control. None. I hate spots like that. (laughs) You can't do nothing. Stunt driver Donna Evans also did some of the driving for this sequence as she was doubling Sandra Bullock in certain shots. That was, like, one of the worst experiences for me as a stunt performer because... I'm literally driving this huge bus. I see him, they're they're letting him go back underneath the front of my bus and I cannot see him at all. And I have someone on a radio saying, slightly right, slightly left. And you know, you're just praying that the people on the radio don't get the rights and lefts mixed up because sometimes that happens when people are directing you. All right, here are actors Julia Vera and Carlos Carrasco with some perspective from inside the bus during all of this. Just thinking about it right now, I'm getting chills because I remember looking at this this truck in front of us 
And I said, what if it just goes sideways? What if the bus has to make the turn? Oh, no, we're going to... It was, it was real. There was even a Keanu puppet figure that they did some work with, which got its nose lopped off. I actually have a picture someplace of, of the dummy lying in the thing with no nose, which I think illustrates how really precarious that, that particular stunt was. So that was like the worst thing for me as a stunt performer because I literally had somebody's life in my hands, but I couldn't even see what I was doing. So that step weighs really heavy on you when you have to perform something like that. When we say relatively safe, I mean, safe doesn't mean the same thing to stunt people as it does to non-stunt people because safe to us just means you have decent odds of coming out of it okay. It doesn't mean it's 100% safe. I also just want to throw in here that another stunt performer, Billy Mortz, was down there for some of this action with the feet dragging and everything. But speaking of feet, there's one shot of particular note in this scene. I mentioned there's someone else you see physically going under the bus. So there's sort of a Jack POV going under the bus and you see his feet. Guess who that was? It wasn't going to be a camera operator, I'll tell you that. It was second unit director Alexander Witt. The operators didn't want to do it. It's from the union where an operator can say, no, I don't want to do that job. It's too dangerous for me. I don't want to do it. So I had to do the one where the feet go underneath the, the bus. And being the director and the DP, the studio didn't know about it. Otherwise, they would have said no way. But the feet that you see when the, that are going underneath the bus, those are my feet because the operators didn't want to do it. And speaking of that dolly or card or whatever you want to call it, you may have been to a Planet Hollywood location in the past and seen one of these things on display there, you know, as seen in the movie Speed. Well, I'd like to invite special effects coordinator John Frazier to burst your bubble. We got a call years later from Planet Hollywood, and they asked if we had any of the little carts from the movie that Keanu was on. And I says, uh, I don't know, there might be something laying around back there. I said, how many, how many do you want? He said, well, we'll take as many as you have. I said, well, how many is that? Six, 12? He says, well, we, you know, we'll put one in every plant in Hollywood. So as many as you have. So I said, well, they might be a little bad shape. He said, no, that's good. That's good. Whatever shape that they're in, we'll take them. I said, okay, can you hold off for a couple of minutes and we'll go back there and, and we'll, we'll look, see what we got. So. I literally put the phone on hold, and me and Dave Amboy, my foreman, we never left the office. We sat there and we're watching the blinking light. So I waited about three or four minutes. I pick up the phone and I go, "You still there?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm still here." I said, "We got ten of them back there. Do you want them all?" He says, "Yeah, I want all of them." I said, "Okay, come by and pick them up." And I said, "Give me a couple of days to fix them up a little bit." So he said, okay, we hadn't even negotiated the price at that point, you know. So we hung up the phone. Dave says, looks like we're in the dolly business. <laughs> the guy wanted 10, we made him 10. Painted them, delivered them. Back to stunt driver Gil Combs. If I made one lap, I made 50,000 laps uh, in the weeks that we were shooting here, going around that course they had laid out for the bus. And, of course, the idea was to, to get around and go through the corners as fast as you could to make it look, you know, like it was still 50 miles an hour. So the bus wouldn't blow up. So that was kind of a challenge, uh, that big old heavy bus, because the suspension was really soft. When it, when I take those corners, basically I was doing a power brake thing to make the suspension squat. And it would, I mean, it would, <laughs> you know, it was almost like we were going to go up on two wheels again, making them corners, you know. Actress Natsuko Ohama. When you're doing these kind of action films, you have to be so careful because there's unplanned things. They didn't account for the centrifugal force that would happen when that bus was going around the corner. And then because uh, those folding doors are automatic, as we were pressed because of the curve of the bus going around the corner and the whole group was pressed that direction against the door, it opened up and Daniel was behind me and he just grabbed the back of my clothes and pulled me so I, could, I wouldn't fall out. It was bad. And so we had lunch and when we came back, there was an uh, invisible cord across the door. 
In the middle of all of this, Harry and the folks back at the police station have stumbled onto something big. Howard Payne, Atlanta PD bomb squad. Retired in Sun Valley in 1989 when a small charge left him with fingers numbering nine. That's our scumbag! Yep. We got him, Jack. We found him. We can get to his place inside of 15 minutes. Great. Jack, I want you to get out of there and sit tight. We're going to go after the source. That's right. They've located Howard Payne. Harry and the SWAT team head out to bust the guy, but of course, another hair-raising moment happens when the dolly snaps free and flies out from under Jack as he clings to the bus's bowels. Ortiz and the rest pull him up into the cabin, but not before Jack leaves a screwdriver jammed into the fuel tank. Now they're leaking gas. The clock is ticking even faster. Hopefully Harry and the rest of the team can get to pain before time is up. Here's set decorator KC Fox again to discuss our madman's abode. That house was a very late find. I remember having like one day to dress that house. At first, I don't even think they were going to walk through the house. But then, no, no, we're going to see inside the house. <laughs> I'll get some stuff. I'll get some. The fact is, I, I was in Hollywood at the moment, and the guys that work at Omega Cinema Props laughed after it came out because I, I shopped nearly the whole thing there. I didn't have any time to go anywhere else. You know, it was tough trying to get from the 105 freeway where you were like laying up orange fencing and trying to figure out what part of the freeway needed to be coned off that day. I remember that day being incredibly hectic. By the way, you should go back and listen to Jeff Daniels' fantastic story about this sequence and his death scene in particular. You know, the moment where Harry knows he's a goner? It's good stuff back in episode 13. But here is actress Margaret Medina with a little more about working with Jeff here. I think our first scene was with the bombing of the house, the blowing up of the house. And he just was funny because I'm in awe of him. And um, Jan DeBont's accent was really thick. So I couldn't really understand it sometimes. We had a scene and then he was giving us direction. And I was like, and he was going, no, Margaret, I don't want it like that. There's just a lot of stuff going on. So finally I said, okay, look, I'm just going to be honest. I didn't tell him that. I don't understand your accent, but I'm like, okay, is this what you want? You want me to come up, look at Jeff, put my hand on the knob and then hesitate and then go back. He goes, yes, that's exactly what I want. I can't do a Dutch accent. I said, great. Thank you. We're all clear. Jeff, are you clear? Yes. Okay. We're all clear now. We're all clear. Great. Thank you. And so then um, we were getting ready to shoot. And then uh, they were setting up the camera and Jeff goes, I'm so glad you said something because I can't understand his accent. <laughs> and I'm like, you that has like 20 more years experience than me, Mr. Circle in the Square. Couldn't ask him. <laughs> and then indeed, pain was a step ahead. The house was rigged to explode, taking out Harry and the rest of the team. Here's special effects coordinator John Frazier. When we did the explosion, when the Keanu's partner got killed, we used to the guy's house. We went to the guy's house in the morning, blew out the front of it, and he goes, whoa, whoa, boy, that's going to be interesting tonight. I go, what's the interesting part? He says, I'm having a barbecue here in about two hours. <laughs> he says, in the front of my house is gone. And it's like, nobody told you we're blowing your house out. He goes, no, no. He says, I knew you guys were in there. You're putting some drywall and stuff in the house so that it wouldn't get, but I never knew, I never really knew what you guys were going to do. He says, so that's pretty cool. You know, he was real cool. He knew that, you know, that it was going to get fixed and it was going to be better than it was. Yeah, we weren't going to walk away from that one. Back to the airport we go, and Jack is about to get some bad news. Harry, tell me good news, man. Oh, I'm sorry, Jack. He didn't make it. It was the watch that led him to me, wasn't it? Huh? It seemed a little hammy to me to build the bomb out of my precious retirement gift, but, you know, I figured a sign that said Howard Payne would be pushing it. And then Jack really loses his shit. You right 
I can't do this by myself, please. Jack, please. Then there's the whole wildcat bit, which you'll recall was a Joss Whedon concoction for Jack to discover that Payne has a camera on the bus. They misdirect that with a signal or whatever the hell is going on there that I've never fully understood, and now it's time to get these passengers off the bus. Here's first AD David Sardi. The whole thing with extracting the passengers going from the bus to the airport people mover was it kind of evolved. It was not something that was precisely planned. We sort of like got everybody out and we had that notion of what it was going to be. But it was clear that when we were doing it, that the request that came from them, like, we need a bump. I want to throw in some of the bus actors while we're on this. Here's Mary Lou Lim. Some of the actors, they really kind of knew, like, the laws and, you know, the guidelines of what they can get away with paying us and not. They would come together. I remember they would all come, okay. We have to come in as a group and tell them that we're doing this thing, so they need to pay us more. I'm like, really? It was kind of generated that way. I don't remember who the ringleader was. <laughs> it might have been Paula. I don't know. She's talking about Paula Montez, who sat in the back of the bus and passed away some years ago. Here's actress Sherry Villanueva. She was a cool little lady. She was like a little firecracker, and um, she would tell us a lot of stories. I mean, she brought a picture of her and... Um, Kurt Douglas one day because she was telling us the stories about like old Hollywood. I guess her husband was a makeup, a makeup artist and she met him in Mexico and uh, she came back here and she said she'd go to all these Hollywood parties all the time. And here's Julia Vera. Well, that was, she knew everything about the business. When we did the stunt, she says, this is stunt work. We should get paid for it. Well, she'd been in this business many years. So then uh, Paula uh, went chasing after the first AD and made him uh, increase our pay because he was stunt pay. She was something that she knew everything. I mean, she just was very, very knowledgeable when it came to show business. There was no question in my mind that absolutely, you got it. Because it was, right? They were moving at speed from one vehicle to another. And there were a lot of times when the cast on the bus had to be very courageous and they were all fabulous they would be waiting to grab you on, on the move people mover but the, just that clearance between the bus and the people mover it, it must have been about three steps but anything can happen in those three steps the plank might shift you might lose your balance always a welcome voice here is loretta jean crudup you know what we all got three hundred dollars but we had to talk her into doing it. When you saw her nervous reaction, that was not acting. That was for real. And finally, Alan Ruck with a killer Jan DeBont impression at the end here. This guy that used to be uh, Kiefer Sutherland's bodyguard, Morris Dunster, was this British guy. I don't even know if he's on the planet anymore, but he was the bodyguard for the Beatles way back in the day. And he was sort of uh, Kiefer's aide-de-camp on um, Young Guns 2. And um, he was just talking about athleticism. And he said, it's balance. It's all balance and hand-eye coordination. And if you've got those two things, then you are athletic. You will have success as an athlete. And I do not have good balance. So, you know, when I was on that, whatever that board was between the the death bus and the... uh, people mover city bus, whatever it was we were moving on to, you know, I didn't have to uh, act. You know, he, he was like, more, you're more scared. Alan, you're more scared. You got, I got to see it in your eyes. You're scared. But inside I was, you know, it's like, whoa, this is for real. Not everyone had the stomach for this. You remember Hawthorne James talking about how Jim Mapp, another one of the bus passengers, would not get on the bus when they were doing Hawthorne's transfer stunt because his heart just couldn't take it. Well, here's production designer Jackson Nagovia with some strong, but ultimately, interestingly, conflicting feelings on this stunt. I don't agree with that. I don't think you should take those risks. And when I saw those actors stepping across from the bus to the uh, airport vehicle, uh, I was scandalized, you know, because, I mean, they weren't athletes. They could have been killed, really hurt at that point. It was moving at about 30 miles an hour, I think, when they walked across it. 
and they weren't stunt people, you know, they were actors <laughs> and that made it much more real. I mean, it's a, the emotion just leaps off the screen at you. You know, you feel that fear. That's one of the things that makes it great. With all of our passengers safely out of harm's way, it's time for Jack and Annie to get out of there. She rigs the steering wheel and the gas pedal, and he prepares the trap door for a spectacular escape sequence. Mark Mancina's score soars so gloriously that Paramount would use that bit in the trailer for Braveheart. But beyond a couple quick shots to establish them, that's not Keanu Reeves and Sandra Bullock flying out from under the bus. It's Brian Smurz and Donna Evans. We had to have been doing like 40 miles an hour. And if you remember the outfit that I was wearing doubling Sandra Bullock, I had bare legs, bare shoulders. If we didn't stay on that thing, the road rash was going to be like laying down a, a road bike. It was going to be horrible. But fortunately, that went really well. And they towed us in and then they they there was a quick release and they released it. And then that's when we just go off, you know, who knows where we're going to go at that point. I mean, we've got these wheels on the bottom of this thing. And it was really, really lucky that we ended up going exactly where we needed to go. And the thing is, is, you know, when they set that stuff up, it's always, well, it's supposed to work like this, but you never know if it's going to do that because there's so many variables involved in doing stunts that you may or may not think about. I mean, there were these little delineators that were on the um, on the runway. And if we hit one of those, it could have flipped us off the thing, you know, which I think we did run over some of them. I'm not hundred percent sure, but you just never know. So you always prepare for the worst and, and hope for the best. You always go into it thinking this has the potential to probably really mess me up, hurt me, but I think it's going to work out well. Kind of a weird mindset. One of the things I have to say that was funny was when I when I went to get the wardrobe to double Sandra Bullock, she had on that little dress, that little flowered dress, and it was kind of see-through. And then she had on underneath, she had a like a bodysuit, but it was like a G-string bodysuit. It didn't have like stuff to cover your buns. <laughs> and I was trying to tuck the dress between my legs and all that because and the last thing I think I even taped it because the last thing I wanted is for the darn thing to come up when we crashed and, and be embarrassed if you get my drift. <laughs> but yeah, that was the funny part. I was more worried about keeping the dress down than I was getting hurt. <laughs> and not to bring things in on a downer, but you remember the emotion on display there when Annie bursts into tears as the adrenaline finally begins to seep out of her following this entire ordeal. Well, it would appear they may have shot that scene the first week of November in 1993, maybe even November 1st, judging by what second assistant director Maggie Murphy recalls here. I want to say River Phoenix died that day, because I remember Sandra was crying. They were very emotional. Everyone was emotional. It was very sad. It's kind of like when Alan Parker died and we were on Runaway Bride. It's like, how do you help that actor recover so they can go back and finish the day, you know what I mean, when they're so distraught. Rest in peace to a legend gone way, way too soon. Now, with Jack and Annie safe, it's time for the coup de grace. The bus becomes untethered from Annie's makeshift rigging and steers off course and toward a massive cargo plane. Remember this part of the scene where the bus and the plane explode was shot out at Mojave Airport, about 100 miles north of L.A. out in the desert. Here's transportation coordinator Randy Peters. When we crashed that airplane, I got that airplane for him because I had a buddy of mine had a, a wrecking yard, uh, an air, airplane boneyard called uh, Aviation Warehouse out in uh, Bartolino. And he had all the planes at um, Mojave, you know, all these mothballed airplanes. So he had ability to get airplanes. I would get airplanes on all sorts of movies for him because, you know, I've done Top Gun and Top Gun Maverick. I did both Top Guns and Flight of Intruder and just all sorts of movies. Like Top Gun Maverick, we're getting a F-14, right? So now I got to figure out how to move it and take it and get guys to take it apart and move it, you know, 500 miles up to Lake Tahoe. So, yeah, we got a free F-14 out of San Diego. And I said, really, free? What? And then I came back and I said, it's going to cost you 200 to move it. 200000 I said, uh, yeah, it's a huge deal. And, you know, you had to take it apart. You had to get CHP. You got to get Nevada police. You got to get, you know, 
So I, I said, Ian, look, I'm, we got to stretch DCA, which is the, you know, the old 707, but it may, this one's called the DCA, same kind of airplane, but different manufacturing. And so I paid 30,000 to blow that plane up. It was just, you know, parts that were just, but then it cost, then I had, then after the blow up, we had to uh, clean it up. And I said to Ian, you know, it's, it's going to cost us, I don't know how much it was. It was a lot of money because we had to get dumpsters and guys. Because what are you talking about? He said, "Why did we clean it up?" I said, "Why did we clean it up?" <laughs> we blew it up. And Ian was in that shot. He said Artolito there, but I think he meant Atalanto, SoCal desert town. Anyway, indeed, after the bus plows into the airplane and explodes in fiery glory, unit production manager Ian Bryce is the guy who gets out of the towing vehicle and runs away from the explosion. Here's Ian. Jan said, Ian, why don't you go go be in the tow tug? And I go, yeah, all right. And, and we'd already done the explosion, right? So this was like an overlap piece where they just, you know, set, set some pretty big fire bars and they reset the fire on the airplane for a second. And I'm sitting in there waiting for Jan, and I got the radio ready for, for somebody to say action. <laughs> and I remember being in that tow tug and I, I, you know, I hear the cue for the fire and the fire came on. And I felt it inside that tow tug. And I just had a pair of overalls on. I didn't have Nomex or any of that business on at that time, right? It was like, you know, we go, ah, it's an overlap shot, whatever. And the fire's like 30 feet away, whatever it was. But man, when it came on, I was like, say action. Say it now, right? <laughs> I didn't say that on the radio. I waited it. I waited and just, you know, like toughed it out. But yeah, it was hot in there. I've said to several people, yeah, if I look kind of scared when I got around the way, that was real. And then go back to Govi and the art director. They, so the door, it was 30 grand for the airplane, but the door was was 30,000 because that door was still usable, you know, the front door that was flopped open. So I said, dude, you just should build a plug or fake it or something because this is what it's going to cost you, you know. And he was adamant and adamant and adamant. And, you know, I said, you guys are idiots. Because once you're going to blow the airplane up, you're going to blow the uh, door up, too. So, yeah, we bought the door. It was thousands. It was probably as much as the airplane. I don't remember exactly how much it was, but it was pretty pricey. It was still used on some other airplanes and, and stuff, you know, and he could sell it. So. Speaking of production designer Jackson Degovia, here he is again talking about a bit of an Easter egg in this sequence. In Die Hard, when the bus with the terrorists in it arrives, it has a color scheme, green and yellow and so forth, to show up in the dark, because it was dark. And it also has the name of what it is. And it's Pacific Courier. It means messenger of peace. Well, I also put it in uh, the opening of Die Hard with Vengeance, with the truck that blows up right in the beginning. And I also put it in speed because the airplane that is blown up has the same colors and it's a specific courier. It's the same thing. And it was just something that tied all those together for me. It was like the marks that I made said, this is a Jack Degovia thing. I like to think that John McClain and Jack Trevin crossed paths. Maybe Jack was at the police academy and John came in to talk to the cadets about his adventures in L.A. and Washington, D.C., Anyway, back to special effects coordinator John Frazier to talk about this glorious explosion. When you do these things, you know, you want that black smoke, and we generally mix it with um, diesel fuel. It's about a 75-25 mix. But what you want to do is you want to get all gas when you do these things because it burns black. And so we'll take a 55-gallon drum of gas and just let it sit for a while. That old gas is a lot more volatile than new gas. So when you're doing something like that, and you, and you want to use old gas, it's just like when we did uh, Apocalypse Now, it was the same thing. It seemed like all the gas we had was just old, rotten, ready to almost lacquer gas. Not to get us confused with multiple Ians, but I want to throw journalist Ian Fails in here. Ian is the editor-in-chief of Befores and Afters, a fantastic Australia-based outlet covering the visual effects industry, and Ian's sense of all of this is second to none. I think they almost set the tone for some explosions in the 90s, right? That Mm -hmm. sort of gasoline 
look. And even mm-hmm. the explosion in Speed 2, which Rhythm and Hughes pulled off of the oil tanker, which mm-hmm. was probably from some real elements, it had the same look as the bus explosion in a way. Ian, by the way, is the only guy on Earth who is maybe, maybe a bigger Speed fan than me. He has a massive collection of memorabilia that he's even exhibited in Sydney. But I'll get into all of that and more discussion with him at a later date. Getting back to this explosion, it had to be one of the largest ever captured on film at that point in time. The current record holder, officially, is the destruction of Blofeld's base in the James Bond film Spectre, although, funnily enough, Michael Bay insists the explosions in Pearl Harbor were bigger. But in 1994, the only thing bigger than what we saw in Speed would have been the napalm strike that John Fraser was referencing from Apocalypse Now, or maybe the big building exploding at the beginning of Lethal Weapon 3, which Jan shot. We can put away the tape measures for now, guys. Back to our other Ian, Ian Bryce. I mean, people think, yeah, we just put a few gallons of gasoline out there, but no, it's complicated and you have to pay attention when you're rigging all that stuff. On Twister, you know, you might remember there's at one point where they're racing with the Dorothy to, you know, try to deploy it. And there's a petrol tank or a gasoline tanker falls out of the sky and the red truck comes up to it right as it lands and goes around the back of the tanker. We, we did that for real. That was 100% live action. That tanker had X amount of gas in it and powder and was strung up between two cranes. And that one we did twice. That was a huge gag to do again, right? But, you know, you just imagine when, you know, you're out in Oklahoma and there's weather and you got two cranes up in the air and there's lightning and, you you know, like you go, oh, man, we got to take that stuff down. First AD, David Sardi. Another thing that I sort of pitched that ended up in the movie was once all the passengers were off the bus and they were in the people mover, there was a reaction shot of them all reacting to the bus exploding. On the day, I was just like, well, why don't we just set up a bunch of mortars and set off an explosion and you know, you'll get a real reaction and you'll get a reflection. Because we weren't going to do that. We were just going to you know, do a shot of them you know, watching and reacting. But I was like, why don't we put an explosion element in that? Because I would normally cue a reaction as a three, two, one, boom, and they'd all react. But I was like, why don't we just fucking set off a mortar and get them to react? And in the end, it turned out, you know, there was this great reflection of an explosion on them. It was kind of a great shot in the movie. And, you know, Frazier's like, sure. I mean, I, mean, I think you set off a five-gallon gas mortar blast that was mad. I mean, it was way bigger than it needed to be, but it was, uh, it certainly got the reaction that I could never have gotten to give by, you know, just going boom. And on that, here's actress Sonia Jackson, one of the passengers on the bus. They put us all on the bus and they said, this is going to happen and we're going to test it. And then they had these canisters spread out probably about 20 feet from us. And then they said that this is a test. And, you know, they went through the whole thing. We're going to test, test, blah, 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 careful, all that stuff that they do when they prepare for the test. And then these canisters went off and went poof, and smoke came up and a little bit of fire. And we kind of went, oh, yeah. <laughs> we just kind of looked at it and thought, all right. And so then they went away and talked about it. Then when it came time to do it, it was boom, 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 And the fire shot up like 20 feet and the smoke and... We got blown back from the window when we were standing there at the, in, the, in the bus looking. And so that reaction was real. I remember that flight back. Uh, there was a bunch of champagne on that plane flying back. There was a lot of relief at the end of that. I bet there was. And guess what? We still have a first and third act to shoot. The elevator and subway sequences were filmed after the bus material, which is why I've structured all of this the way I have. Actually, the bus explosion was filmed at the end of everything. Nevertheless, you get it. But for now, I'd like to bid farewell and dedicate this episode of 50 miles per hour to Bus 2525, a rugged workhorse on the cusp of obsolescence. Here's to you. You took us on one hell of a ride. And I don't know about you, but I could sure use a breather. 
next week on 50 miles per hour. Let's pump the brakes and stretch our legs as 50 miles per hour hits the halfway point. It's time for a grab bag episode. We break out a few choice quotes from the vault that haven't found a home yet. It's harder now because we have inundated the audience with the children of Terminator and Speed and those other movies you mentioned. We also get into the thorny subject of Jan de Bont's temperament on set. Jan doesn't know that he's being an asshole at times, you know, <laughs> what he's shooting. Let's just say when they called me to do Twister, I said no. We didn't get along particularly well. And so it was not a happy experience for me. And we even ask a seven-year-old for his thoughts about speed because we are not above child labor. The bad thing is, like, the elevator was going up and the Jack Traven was about to get squished. Plus, reader reviews and emails. All of that and more next week right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time. What was your favorite movie when you were younger? Yes, the Fugitive and um, what's it? No, um, Gone in the wind. Gone with the wind. When you were younger, that was one of your favorite movies. Well, I remember me and my girlfriend. Last name was Rogers. Used to the um, theater. I don't know if they still have them. They they had um, seats where two people could sit in them, like love room seats. Yeah. I don't know if they still have them. And um, we went to see Gone with the Wind and sat in those seats. <laughs> and a four-hour movie. I remember, um, oh, but there was intermission. Yeah. And then I remember us selling poppies afterwards. We were in Girl Scouts and we sold poppies. And I don't remember why, why we did that. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like flowers? Yeah, but there was a, we did the well, um, paper. Mm. And it must have been something to do with Veterans Day or something. I don't know.